0: So this particular uh, message is called Living Dangerously. And if you've been following my previous sermons, you, you would note that the word dangerous and dangerously seems to be coming up quite a bit uh, lately. And it all stems back from oh, a couple months ago now where uh, I was stirred afresh to the facts and to the meditation that to live fully for Jesus is by definition, dangerous in this world. And so instead of looking at that word as a negative, to begin to leverage it in our spiritual lives as a positive and turn it into something to anticipate. I mean, people do dangerous things all the time with a smile on their face because it's dangerous. We as Christians have a tendency to go the opposite direction though. It's dangerous. Oh, I don't want to have anything to do with it. When in actuality, it 's dangerous, and then we get a wry smile on our on our face and say i 'm interested, tell me more and uh, Philip was telling me uh, last night we had dinner with the Hartmans, and he was telling uh, me about an island off of India, uh, which is like this unreached people group and it's just it 's fascinating because, as a Christian, there has to be this spark inside of us to say, you know anyone who has tried to Uh, go to that island to reach it uh, for the sake of Christ, is killed. And some guy just recently tried to do that and was killed. And everyone said what a fool he was, even the Christians. And that just shows you a mentality problem. That actually we throughout the ages have been the ones to do what some would term foolish things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul's entire life is a foolish venture if you don't understand that he is serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If he's serving this myth, this idea out there instead of the reality of who God is, then you'd have to feel tremendously sorry for the man and what he suffered in his life. Instead, he's the most robustly happy man you may ever encounter in all of the scriptures. And yet he suffered more greatly than any other man, other than maybe Christ, that we could ever uh, look at. And there's a smile on his face throughout the whole thing. I, I think I mentioned this somewhere along the lines over this uh, the Dangerous Edge series that I just finished up, and that is Paul, the, the movie, there was a movie done on Paul, and I... I'm not saying it wasn't well done, it's just that I didn't like it uh, very much. And the main reason was I didn't feel it represented the joyfulness, the radiance, and the smile of Paul the Apostle. The guy was so somber and serious. And that sort of bothers me because, you know, I'm not saying that Paul couldn't be a serious man, I'm just saying he was marked by something, a cheerfulness, a radiance, and a joy, and that wasn't captured in that. And I don't think it's captured in most of Christianity today. Uh, One of the things when I was uh, pondering, this is over a decade ago, I was pondering what the church of Jesus Christ needed. And this is the way I said it. We need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, what all of the animals have in Steve Irwin, you know, the crocodile hunter. You see the the animals have an advocate in Steve Irwin who gets so excited about them that when you hear him talk, you're interested too. You're like, well, if anyone's going to be that excited about something, it must be fascinating. And he's talking about things that I have had no interest in in my entire life. And I still find myself going, I'd like to hear more from Steve Irwin. He's passionate. He's full of life. He's full of excitement. And yet he is entering into very dangerous situations to get up close and personal touches with these animals. How much more would it impact the world if we showed that sort of Christianity? The willingness to go into dangerous places. The enthusiasm to do it. So that at least gives you a little backdrop of this idea of living dangerously. This is going to be a very practical message. It's going to get down to a certain sector in our lives that most of us don't see. There are actions that we see and there's outcomes that we do see. we're, We're observant of our lives. And yet there's oftentimes this sector of our life that goes overlooked. It shouldn't, but it's very easy to miss it. And it's what I oftentimes will call the primary actions of our life. Oftentimes I've called them first things. They're the things that happen before your action. You know the action that everyone sees? Like I'm saying something right now, but there was something that happened before I'm saying it that is leading me to actually have this message. So something is formed within me before I deliver this message. This isn't just off the cuff. This is thought through, prayed about, Our Christian life oftentimes has outcomes that aren't what we want. We're like, ah, I don't want that outcome. But it's because we didn't care for a primary action. There was something before that action that we were supposed to deal with, but we didn't deal with it. And as a result, our outcome, or the fruit that we're bearing, is not healthy. So living dangerously. Now this is gonna be a funny definition for living dangerously, not what you would expect. Living life God's way, with God's wisdom, God's decisions, and God's direction. You know that that's extremely dangerous in this world? (laughs) So note, this way of living typically leads to a cross. Just want heads up, eyes wide open, you do realize that to follow Jesus... Is to live dangerously, and to live dangerously oftentimes means—and I shouldn't just say oftentimes—it leads to persecution. Anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Fact: Anyone who really desires to walk the narrow way is going to have friction in their life. That's why it's called narrow. You do, do know what narrow means? It means a way of difficulty and compression, which is called the narrow or the dangerous way. It's the It's the way that challenges everything about our humanity. We are naturally inclined to a broad way, not to a narrow way. And as a result, you'll see the world will flock to Broadway and very few will flock to narrow way productions. That isn't what anyone's interested in. We're not interested in Jesus and the fact that we're sinners and we're sinful and we need a savior and we need to be redeemed and that he owns us and has bought us with a price, we don't actually want to hear that because that means giving up our place of rulership over our life. But God is interested in setting us free, and the only way that that's going to happen is if we give up our life and entrust it to him. Pick up our cross and follow. So living dangerously, how do we live this life that truly showcases Jesus, And we all crave it at a certain level. You know, as I talk, there's part of you that wants the Broadway. There's part of you that wants to coddle your humanity. There's part of you that doesn't really like messages like this, and yet there's something that leads you to a place like this on a Sunday morning. There's a lot of other places you could go to that would not give you a message called living dangerously, And there's part of you that's attracted to an easier message. You want someone to just pat you on the back and say, everything's fine. Everything's gonna turn out great. You're not gonna have any difficulties in this life and if you do, just rebuke them. Instead of recognizing that this is part and parcel of the path that we have been called to walk down and to actually engage with that with a smile. See, there's another part of you that wants this. You want to be stirred. You want to be kicked in the rear end to move in this direction. You actually want someone to prod you, to push you, to say more of Jesus, less of you. Jesus deserves everything, and we want to know that. We want to be reminded of that. And so how do we live this life? It starts with how you get out of bed. So if any of you have been a disciple at Ellerslie, you know that I will talk about the importance of how you start things, the first actions, those primary uh, beginning points. And for me, possibly the most important one in my life is how I get out of bed in the morning. There is a natural inclination inside of all of us to get out of bed groggy, grumpy, and that's why it's called the wrong side of the bed. Have you ever heard that statement, they got up on the wrong side of the bed? Well, there's obviously two sides to the bed then. There's one side of the bed that is ready to engage the day, ready to rejoice and make merry with that day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. My mom would always come in and she would be singing her song. Uh, I don't know that I want to sing it. I almost did. It almost came out. Uh, but it was good morning to you, good morning to you. Uh, we're all, well, I, I see, if I don't sing it, I can't. I don't know the words. It's, it's, it's attached to the song. I'm going to try and skip that, though. I know some of you are very intrigued. But And I was so irritated by my mom's song. I'm just going to let you know that. She would come in so happy, and I did not want to be happy in the morning. Morning is not happy time. Morning is time to be grumpy and grumble, because what other time in the day can I get away with that? When you start out incorrectly in your get-out-of-bed routine, it's amazing, but that colors and affects or infects your trajectory for the rest of the day. If you start out self-focused, it's amazing how self-focused you can bring that into the rest of your day as well. However, if you start out turning outward and rejoicing in Jesus, it sets a tone and a pace for your soul. And so when we realize that his mercies are new every morning, well, that means we can start out tomorrow morning better than we did today. And so for me, I have been practicing this. I've, I've been focused on it in an extra heightened level for the past two weeks. And so I've been doing it anyways. I, I mean, I get out of the morning and it's, I get out of the morning. I get out of bed in the morning and I stick my feet on the ground. And it's a deliberate thing. First of all, I don't push snooze. It's, it's, a, it's an action of soul that I deleted out of my life. It's not an option. It's not on the table. Because a snooze button is consulting me instead of God. I don't know that God has ever told someone to push snooze. Just It's just a hunch that I have. Could you imagine God's like, yeah, push snooze. You don't need to get up right now. I, we don't need to talk. Uh, and so when I am going to bed at night, I recognize that I'm a lot clearer minded than I am in the morning. And if you ask your body if snooze is a good idea, I don't know that a human has ever answered no. A human always wants snooze. Isn't that a funny thing? Who invented snooze? Snooze is a dangerous thing. And yet... I don't push snooze. I immediately move to get my feet out onto the floor. I don't care if it's cold. You know, you know that feeling? Because, you know, we have that wood floor down there where it's actually like, what, vinyl plank. Uh, and I stick my feet on the vinyl plank. And it's not cold, cold. It's not like tile, right? But it's not warm, warm either. It doesn't matter. I'm getting out of bed. And the first thought I have is, thank you, Lord Jesus. Good morning. I am in Christ, and I deliberately go up. I deliberately rejoice in this moment. It is a discipline of my life, and as I'm walking, it does not mean I'm wide awake when I'm doing this, by the way, and it does not mean I don't have a little uh, you know, a disturbance in my physical body trying to just keep balance uh, as I'm walking because I'm groggy. Sometimes I'm in that one awkward moment of my sleep where I'm just like almost you know, dead to the world, right? However, I want to be alive to Christ in that moment. It's been one of the most crucial disciplines of my life. However, I could get my morning routine, like getting out of bed, correct. But then when I enter into what I'm going to call my living room uh, sector, which is where my computer is going to be over there waiting for me. You guys have a computer that waits for you in the morning? Almost like, come to me. And it has like beeps and dings, and it has reasons to absorb you into its processes, its, its busyness. And you see, there's two different ways that I could approach my living room sector. One is to focus on Christ, to focus on his word, to focus on study, to focus on what he would say, to focus on prayer. And the other one is to get absorbed. And I tell you what, it is so easy for me to get absorbed. And so what I recognize is, again, I'm setting a pattern. I could set the right pattern in getting out of bed, but in each sector in my life, I need the correct pattern. And I could keep going throughout my day, and I could show you that actually there's an overall trajectory of my day, but then there's individual pockets of my day. When I'm going to enter into a conversation with Leslie, did you know that I have to be proactive the same way I am in waking up in the morning? I can't just think, oh, great, not another conversation. You do that, and the conversation immediately goes south. So, to engage a conversation, if we could call it the marriage ministry side of my life, to actually proactively come in to serve and to listen instead of to be irritated and to grumble because I need to get to something else, you immediately sabotage that dimension of your life and it affects the trajectory. So, It starts with how you get out of bed. The justification of not yet. You know, there's things in your life right now, if we could just stop your life and push sort of a pause button, and I could say, okay, let's all just sort of take your life and look at it from its different angles, and then we could say, what's this? Well, yeah, I'm getting to that. Yeah, yeah, I I recognize that that's there, but I'm going to get to that. We all would have some things that... God is working on. There's no doubt about it, okay? We, we're all works in process. And so there would be uh, flecks of selfishness in us. There would be uh, streaks of, uh, you know, bad attitude uh, in us. You know, we, we have different areas that, yes, yes. But you know, there's certain things that we are aware of right now that we are saying, well, yeah, I'll get to that. Or not yet. It's, it's not yet time for that. I'll get to that when this happens in my life. And so we put it off until something happens. It's it's a funny thing that we do as humans, okay? It's a very human thing. So we're going to look at the uh, book of Haggai, and we're going to look at the not yet principle, okay? Now, I'm not going to go through the entire book, but close to it, okay? This is an extremely fascinating parallel with what we are talking about. So uh, up on the screen, if you're getting this via podcast, I have uh, a root verb in the Hebrew called Hagag, and then uh, a noun, Hag, and then a proper noun, Hagei. And of course, Hagei is a proper noun. It's the name of the prophet that is going to uh, put together this book. And this word is like what I'm going to call a double-sided word. There's actually a lot of these in the Hebrew that they have two meanings, and the meanings are the exact opposite one from the other. And uh, it's it's like the idea of Thanksgiving, if you guys have ever heard me teach on Thanksgiving, it means to lift up and to throw down simultaneously. It's like, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, how could it mean both? Because to be able to lift up, you need to throw something down. In our life, to be able to truly give praise and thanks to our God is we need to throw away everything that's standing in the way of us doing that. And it actually means to lift your hands. You know, to lift your hands, I don't know if you guys have ever gone through this Uh, exercise in your Christian life where you see someone around you and they have their hands raised and you're thinking, am I supposed to do that? Am I supposed to raise my hands? If you've never raised your hands before, it's extremely difficult to raise your hands. I don't know why. And and maybe it's a personality thing. Maybe for some of you, I never had any problem with that. However, for me, it was calculated and thought through. And so I started with like this. And it's like, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm raising my hand. And I felt so self-conscious the whole time, like someone is going to be looking at me going, oh, he's raising his hand. And I'm thinking, we have this notion that everyone is watching us uh, when we're in church. And it's, again, a human thing. To be able to lift your hands, what do you have to do? You have to throw down all that stands in the way of you lifting your hands, all your self consciousness, all this self uh, thought. It's like, no, this is for you, Lord. And so it actually makes sense that thanksgiving means to throw down, to lift up and to throw down simultaneously. So does this word. And so this word for Haggai is actually this idea of this festivity, this joyful celebration. And yet, what if you happen to be the the sacrificial lamb at the celebration? It's interesting because it's also a solemn sacrifice. So for one character in this whole thing, you know, we're offering up a lamb and we're all going to worship and praise. How wonderful. But what if you're the lamb? Well, it's rather solemn and serious for you. And that seems to be this whole dimension in our life. The greatest breakthroughs in our life, the greatest moments of rejoicing come when we agree with God and we lay down our lives as a sacrifice. And we say, here you go, God. And what comes out of that is a festive celebration. Celebration. Isn't that an amazing thought? And so the two seem to really go together. Of course, they do. They're knitted together here. And this is exactly what the book is about. That's what I love about the Hebrew and how God orchestrated this. The book of Haggai is all about, are you willing to finally come and make me the focus? You see, you're making your life the focus, O Israel. But when you make me the focus, you will find the breakthrough you're after. See, many of us are frustrated with the damper pedal that is on our life. It's like, oh, I'm trying so hard, but I can't seem to break through. The book of Haggai is all about that. Because that's exactly the way the nation of Israel was. They had a damper pedal over them. They were working so hard. And they esteemed the right things. But they were all focused on their individual lives. And as a result, God had to reprove them in and through this book. And then there is Amazing breakthrough. So Haggai chapter one, verses one and two. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So where's the temple of God? Well, it's been torn down. Remember, this is the Babylonian captivity. And so these are uh, those from the Babylonian captivity that are returning to Jerusalem, but there's no temple there. And so these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, we know it's important to build the house of the Lord, but we have issues. We have personal problems that we have to tend to. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? I thought that was an interesting description of their houses, their paneled houses. While this house lies in ruins, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And so God is going to say this phrase multiple times to the people of Israel. Consider your ways. How are you functioning in the depths of your being? What is your motivation? Why are you doing what you're doing? So you guys are living in your paneled houses. Meanwhile, the house of God is in ruins. How can you think that God can prosper your life when first things are not first things? When you're not tending to what is most important? You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So are you frustrated with how things are working? I mean, you're working all day long. You stick it in your little uh, uh, bag and there's holes in the bottom and all your coins go rolling out. That's exactly what they're feeling right now. You've sown much and you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. What a miserable existence. These are God's people. So are we. And yet there can be a frustration. We pray a lot, but are we seeing the impact? One of the things that I am moved by today is that we as the church would humble ourselves, that we would pray and seek his face, and that we would turn from our wicked ways so that he could heal our land. I'd sort of like him to start with us, and he would heal our marriages, he would heal our families, he would heal our churches, so that the land could be healed. Let's start with first things, and that's why this message is a very granular message. Because we can look out there and see a nation that has fallen to pieces. I don't think any of us are gonna argue that. Our nation is not healthy right now. Well, why? Well, the church isn't healthy. How in the world can you expect to have a healthy nation when the church is unhealthy? Well, why? Well, because the families within the churches are not healthy. Well, why? Because the marriages in those families are not healthy. Well, why? Because the individuals in those marriages are not healthy. You see, this is where it starts. It starts with each one of us at an individual level making a decision to value the smallest movements of our soul, the smallest thoughts in our mind that we begin to allow a revival to strike us, to sober us, and to bring the fear of God back to our lives where we're living in the light of God as opposed to thinking that it doesn't matter. We're focused on our paneled houses instead of focused on building his temple. And as a result, God's blessing cannot come upon our life. And so though we are working, it is not prosperous. It is not effective. So this is what God is going to say. After his rebuke that there is a loss uh, and everything you're doing is not actually working. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And then when you brought it home, it blew away. Why declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. Well, each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. So I'm just going to emphasize this one line here, because this seems to be the action, the primary action. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. So instead of arguing, God, why aren't you blessing me? I'm working so hard for you. He says, consider how you're living. Let's, let's, let's rewind. Let's get back to the most central, salient part of your life. How are you living right there? So for me today, what I want to do is I want to get to those first actions, like how are you getting out of bed in the morning? Like, what does that have to do with it? I'm asking the question, how are you getting out of bed in the morning? When you enter into your living room, how are you engaging with your life's duties and the weights that you have, the cares? How are you processing those? When you walk into the kitchen zone, are you thinking, what do I feel like and what would satisfy my appetite? Or are you saying, God, shape this body to be formidable, to tackle the challenges of life. What would make me strong to serve you? Very different reasoning. All throughout the day, we have these zones that we walk into, and yet when we approach them selfishly, it decomposes that zone of our life. But when we approach it for God's glory and say, God, I got one shot at this thing called living and I want to do it well for you. Then we're going to say, God, I want to wake up in the morning with zest and zeal. I want to enter into the living room and say, I'm going after Jesus today. I want to enter into the kitchen and say, God, I'm willing to give up what my appetites would crave so I could be built for you. All of these zones in our life, and we can keep going from there, are where it begins, if we don't allow God to touch those first things, how in the world are we going to see the other things change? We want the work that we're doing to be effective. We'll start with the house of God. In Israel, that's exactly what the issue was. We need to build the temple. Well, Paul's going to throw a curveball at all of us in the New Testament and so say, you do know that you are that temple. Let's start with the first things that are taking place in our own life, Let's make sure Jesus is at the center of this so that actually the rest of the things that we are doing can prosper. So here we are in Haggai 1, verse 12 through 14. This is going to be the response of the leaders of Israel, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. You're going to see their incredible picture of Jesus. Joshua even is the same name Jesus has. Zerubbabel is in the lineage of the king. So Jesus, that's one of, you could almost say it this way. That's Jesus is great, 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 great grandfather, right? He is actually a picture of the Messiah. He is going to build the temple of God. What is Jesus going to do? he's going to rebuild the temple of God that was torn down. That's exactly what Zerubbabel is doing. You combine this and you have a king and a priest that are going to respond and they're going to build the temple of the Lord. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Oh, wouldn't that be a great message to hear from God? I am with you. Boy, I mean, that's probably more than anything. We crave just to know that where we're at, he's there. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So if you guys remember the statement of Moses to Joshua, where he's going to say, be strong and of good courage. Fear not. You know, all all of that where they're in the book of Deuteronomy. They're moving into the book of Joshua. They're going to take the land. This is like a rehearsal of almost the same language. This is that same word. If any of you have ever heard the ancient war cry, this is Hasak. Hasak. This is God himself giving a war cry to the people in their response to build the temple of God. Seems like a funny thing to have a war cry for, doesn't it? To build the temple of God. Well, you need something to rouse you out of your slumber to recognize that you can't be passive in living out this Christian life. So it's so easy to get tired and exhausted in this life. What we need is a fresh zest in our soul. A Tomorrow morning, get up and greet your God with joy. And when you walk into the living room, serve your God with every fiber of your being. Go after him, study his word, and then live it. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't leave it at home. Make sure you go with him tomorrow. When you go into the kitchen, I want you to humble yourselves before your God and recognize that he bought this with a price. You are not your own. You are not living to satisfy your appetites. You're living to satisfy him. So as a result, you freshly surrender your body so that you can be built to serve him in this hour. So Haggai chapter 2, 6 through 7, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So many of us, we've struggled because our life has not exhibited the power of what the Bible says it's supposed to. And yet, if we deal with first things, if we correct our patterns, it actually solves the riddles of our life. This, what you are and what we are together, is an incredible, powerful thing in this earth. The devil trembles before the reality of what the church of Jesus Christ would be if we got our game on. And yet, the devil wants to obscure that. He wants to cover that up, and he wants us to give up, to throw in the towel. So, I'm just going to emphasize this one scripture again: Haggai 1:8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. It's a first step for each of us. We have to define first steps. What are we supposed to do today? It's one good. You know, it's one thing to hear this big message about living powerfully for Jesus Christ. However, living powerfully for Jesus Christ starts with very small micro-movements of obedience in our soul. If you recognize that you're doing something wrong, what should you do about it? You should repent, and you should do that, which is right. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it sins, but he who knows what he ought to do and does it, hey, that's, that's living for Christ right there. So the latent power often lost due to the Great Depression. So over the last year, we've had not what would be termed in history as the Great Depression. That was back in the 30s, right, in America. But not altogether different in how it felt. There was an oppression upon this country. I'm not saying it isn't still there. It's a very real thing where we've watched the course of an entire nation shift direction. In fact, it's an entire world. We've watched ideology slip in and become mainstream ideology that none of us, you know, agreed with the entire while, but there it is. And now this is the common way of thinking. Now masks are actually normal as opposed to abnormal. Do you remember the days when masks were abnormal? Now they're normal. And so as a result, we've changed our thoughts. We've changed our atmosphere. And it's like this heaviness that is upon our culture. I mean, it's, it's weighty. And it can easily come upon us, too. And so oftentimes, one of the number one things I've noted over this past year is the fact that this movement, whatever it is, that has come upon this world in the past year, almost, we're almost at that year anniversary exactly, aren't we, has done one very specific thing, and that is squelch the function of the Church of Jesus Christ. You see, we're built to function together. We're actually the ones that step into situations when people are suffering and we come and bring help. What happened this last year is we were told to stay away from everyone that was suffering. That is the exact opposite function that we have. And as a result, since we were caught off guard, we were dizzied and we were clouded by it, we didn't know how we should function, which has actually now changed our function to the point where now it's now our normal function to not engage with people that are suffering. And this is where I want God to touch us. Sometimes you get bad habits that start... And you have to repent of them. You have to get back to the most primary movement in your soul and correct it. We are placed on this earth and given a commission by the King of Kings to go into this world and change it for Jesus Christ. It really doesn't matter what any of the governments of this earth say, what the CDC says. It matters what our God says. And his great commission of our life has not altered so let's go back to early, uh, well, earlier America. So let's go back to the Great Depression in the 1930s. America was building, focusing on its own paneled houses. And as a result, the world stage was totally ignored by America. So a character named Hitler arose onto the scene and began to take over Europe. And, you know, he took over the, uh, the Rhineland, the Sedaten land. He took over Czechoslovakia. Uh, he t- took over Austria, and then he moved into Poland, and finally the Brits and the French were like, that's enough, and they declared war, and so we have the beginnings of World War II. And you know what the United States is doing? It's focused on its paneled houses. It has no interest in being a part of all this uh, because, hey, that's that's your issue, not mine. And uh, so this is going to be a series of events, and I want to show you something in and through this. This uh, comes. I gave a a series this last year called the Spiritual Lessons from World War II, and in a message called the Battle of. Uh, it's actually called it the Battle of Ludi Gulf because it was so close to my name. But the Battle of Leyte Gulf is a famous battle in the Pacific, and what is seen in that that stood out to me is the fact that the United States, when it got its game on was an unstoppable force. But at this point in the late 1930s, it's embarrassing. We're in the Great Depression. We are sucking our thumb. We're in the fetal position. We, our economy is collapsing. Our, you know, our social infrastructure is disastrous. What did we need? We needed a cause, something bigger than ourselves. Because as long as we were focused on our own paneled houses, we were going down. So, September 1st, 1939, Germany invades Poland. World War II begins. The United States is in the midst of a Great Depression. December 7th, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The United States is awakened out of its selfish stupor. You do know that Winston Churchill slept really good that night, that the United States was bombed uh, by the Japanese. That was one of his best nights in the entire war, he says. He slept like a baby because he knew that they were going to win the war now, because the United States was awakened. That's what he was hoping for. That's what he was praying for. God, awaken America out of its stupor. Boy, do I feel like that right now. God, the church is such a mighty power, but it is sitting on its thumbs right now. It's looking to the government saying, what can we do? Can you tell us what we can do? Instead of looking to the king of kings saying, what are we called to do? We have a job to do right now. June 4th, 1942, the Battle of Midway, the United States battles for survival. So the Japanese need to hit America while it's still weak. The, J- the United States is trying to get its, its act together, trying to get its manufacturing system together. You know that it takes typically a nation about two years to get into the swing of a manufacturing system for war. And so the Japanese are going to hit us when we're still weak. So remember, we were hit uh, December 7th, 1941. This is June 4th. And if they can take Midway, by surprise, the uh, Pearl Harbor's next, and then the west coast of America. Do you know that it was a very real possibility that the Japanese were going to attack the west coast of America? Isn't that weird? Most of us don't even think that because it's like, oh, we won the war. But we don't recognize how tenuous the situation was. If we were to look back in history, like, say the church actually, there's a huge revival and the world has changed. People are going to forget how close we were to the edge of the cliff right now. Right now, I mean, the church is right nearing extinction. We know it's not going to go extinct because God's in control, right? But wow, we we are not looking too hot, guys. Now, I know some people love to defend the church. Hey, we're fine. God loves us just the way we are. I'm not saying he doesn't love us. I can't imagine that he's impressed. If Eric Lutie is not impressed, how much more the God of the universe who is holy, holy, holy. His perspective, I mean, I don't know what it is, but, you know, I, I can't imagine. He's like, oh, well done, church of Jesus Christ we're sitting on our thumbs. We're in the fetal position. We're not offensive, not believing in the almighty power of the the God of the universe that has destroyed the powers of sin and death. Who do we serve? So similar situation, June 4th, 1942. I'm just going to give you some stats on paper. The fighting strength at Midway, and that's the, uh, if you're seeing this live, you get to see the, the little graphics. I have the old flag for Japan in World War II. That was their old flag. Now it's just a red uh, sun in the middle of a white flag. And so what you see is on the right side is all the Japanese strength, and on the left side you see the American strength. The Americans are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered in every regard. Japan hasn't lost one battle up to this point. America hasn't won one. Okay, they haven't done anything right and they're sort of fumbling their way through this. And yet, they're going and I'm not going to go into the battle of Midway, it's good, but the Americans are going to win this thing. And it is su- it's like a David Goliath type of a thing. And so this is what's going to after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the famous statement by Osoroku uh, Yamamoto is I fear all we've done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. This is what I've been hoping the enemy's been whispering all last year. It's like is it true though? Has the enemy awakened us from our stupor and filled us with a terrible resolve? I think there's been moments, flickers, where the church is like, enough! And then they go back to sleep. I'm not sure, I, you know, I've been watching it very closely. So Edward Gray, listen to this quote. The United States is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. Now this isn't just a pro-America rah-rah type of message. I'm using America as a symbol. America was sleeping. America had no interest in anyone else outside of itself. It was focused on its own paneled houses. And God's saying, you want to know why you're not succeeding? You want to know why you're falling to pieces? Because there's a world around you that needs what you have, but you were sitting on your thumbs selfish. Are you ready to wake up and live according to the purpose that I've given you? Listen to this quote. Now, this is just the scriptures talking, right? The church of Jesus Christ is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. And I'm going to take this uh, quote one degree further, maybe just a little more granular down to the U level. The children of Jesus Christ are like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power they can generate. What God intended for us as individuals and for us as a church is so much greater than what we are witnessing today. October 23rd, 1944, the Battle of Leyte Gulf. Isn't that close enough to Lutie that you could understand why I'd get excited about that? It's like, yeah, and especially since this is a great event in history. It's like, yeah, I like, I like being associated with this. The United States has officially become an unstoppable force within the Pacific theater. The United States is going to shock the world. No one has ever seen such manufacturing, such productivity as they saw in the United States in this little span of time. It is so absurd to the rest of the world. They have no idea what they just awakened. So listen to Winston Churchill on the topic. The organization and production of the United States were in full stride and it attained astonishing proportions. A single example may suffice to illustrate the size and success of the American effort. In the autumn of 1942, only three American aircraft carriers were afloat. By the way, at this time, it took two years to build an aircraft carrier. Two! And so they had three afloat. So in the autumn of 1942, only three American aircraft carriers were afloat. A year later, there were 50. By the end of the war, there were more than 100. This achievement had been matched by an increase in aircraft production, which was no less remarkable. So look at these numbers. This is the Battle of uh, Lide Gulf. And so you can just sort of see it 8 to 1 on aircraft carriers because the Japanese are being decimated by this ever-increasing strength of America. It's like they picked a fight with the wrong country. See, if you're American, you're like, yeah, that's right. 8 to 3 on light, air, light aircraft carriers, 18 to 2 on escort carriers, 12 to 7 on battleships, 15 to 14 on heavy cruisers, 9 to 6 on light cruisers. And look at this one, 166 destroyers to 35 destroyers. Total, I mean, overwhelming production. Now, if you were to think, now, I don't want to do this to the poor Japanese. I don't have anything against the Japanese. I love the Japanese. However, in World War II, they're a great symbol of the enemy. (laughs) They really are. I can't help it. Everything about them was against everything that was true and right and lovely. And if you were to recognize, it's sort of like there's a column in your life, and it looks like you're sort of in the Battle of Midway, where it looks like the enemy actually has the upper hand. It seems like he's winning, if anything. I mean, it's like a David-Goliath type of battle. I know he was defeated at the cross, but why does he seem so powerful? What happens when the church gets its game on? So just look at total production in World War II. I mean, it is so outrageous how the United States is going to overwhelm everything in the world to the point where it's going to shift the entire balance of power in the world. 99 to 30 aircraft carriers produced. This is just in World War II. That's a ton of aircraft carriers, by the way. 30 is a remarkable production by the Japanese during World War II. That's an amazing amount of productivity. And yet 99 aircraft carriers. Doesn't it bother you that it's not 100? That that bothers me. 12 battleships to zero. 72 to 52 cruisers. 377 to 209 destroyers. 422 to 189 convoys and escorts. 232 to 213 submarines. And then 300,000 airplanes to 75,000 airplanes. So how do we move forward into a position of strength because that's what I care about. I desire the church of Jesus Christ strong. I desire my own life strong. I desire my own marriage strong. I desire my own family strong. I desire the local church body here in this ministry strong. Lord Jesus, what is needed? And this is where I feel he's touching me. This isn't just for you. This is for me. It's in the first most primary actions. I may be getting up well in the morning, but am I entering into my living room well? Am I entering into my kitchen well? Am I entering into my marriage well? Am I entering into my parenting well? These are all zones of my life that demand excellence, focus, and the fear of God. A holy trembling to recognize that if this is going to represent Jesus, I need to care for it with intentionality. I don't just accidentally, well, I'll get to that someday in the future. That's what the Israelites were doing. Oh, not yet. We'll get to the house of God. Well, that's why you're not succeeding. You see, if you want to actually break through in your life, you need to allow the living God to touch these zones in your life. So listen to this. This is that same scripture, uh, but with a little New Testament flip to it go up to the hill and cling to that wood and let him build you into a house. Isn't that incredible how the gospel is found in that first step? It's the gospel. Letting the gospel touch every one of these zones in your life. If you don't have Jesus as the primary motive when you wake up in the morning, you're off. If you don't have Jesus as your primary motive when you walk into the living room. If you don't have Jesus as your primary motive when you walk into the kitchen. If you don't have Jesus as your primary motive when you engage with your spouse, if you don't have Jesus as your primary motive when you engage with your children, you're off. It's not going to reveal God. You could work hard at it, but it's not. It's going to be like sticking the money coins in the pouch and having a hole in the bottom of it. They'll just jingle out and roll down the street. You see, God wants the things we do to work just as much as we do. So he says, let's get first things first. So first operations. You know, this is a big deal in Scripture. God is going to talk about the first things we do a lot. In fact, as I sort of lay that out there, just allow your mind to think about some of those first things that God is going to uh, sort of circle and highlight and say, right here, this is where you start. So listen to the start of Genesis. Uh, well, the start of the Bible. In the beginning, God. So just think about that. When you wake up in the morning, now I know it's going to say that he created the heavens and the earth, right? But just think about that. In the beginning, who's there? Right there. Stop right there. What matters? Okay, you're getting out of bed in the morning. So in the beginning of this day, God. All right, you're walking into the living room in the beginning. Right? right who's there? God. You see, this is this is a statement of priority. He is the creator. He is the source of all that is going to change and build life. So then John 1, this is another great one for your living room, when you walk into the living room. In the beginning was the Word. <laughs> in other words, how you're starting everything. Now, I know that's talking about time period. In the beginning of all things was Jesus. Yes. And at the same, thing, same time, when you're getting out of bed, in the beginning, what's coming out of you? Is it Jesus? When you're entering into the living room, what's coming out of you? Or what are you pursuing? Is it Jesus? Is it the Word? So listen to this. God, the beginning of everything good, very good. You see, when God is there, what's going to come out? Oh, it's good. That's very good. Is that the description of your life right now? The product that's coming out of your life. Is it good? Is it very good? If you want it to be good, very good, what do you need? You need God at the beginning of it. God, the beginning of a new life. God, the beginning of freedom. God, the beginning of fruitfulness. All things that we desire, but God is the source. God, the beginning of a life that works. I don't know about you, but I really don't want to live a life that doesn't work. There's nothing more frustrating than that. I don't like spending my time on something that doesn't work. If I'm going to invest myself in it, it really is a nice sense to know that it's going to work. And there's a guarantee, and that is when God is at the cornerstone of it, it always works. It doesn't always work the way we thought it was going to work. God has a great sense of humor. But it's going to work. So first, sacrifice. All right, before we're going to start this whole thing, let's start with a sacrifice. So think about how the entire Jewish calendar is going to start. It's going to start with the exodus out of Egypt. And they're going to sacrifice lambs and put that blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their houses. And this is going to begin a new nation. This nation is going to start, first, sacrifice. Isn't that an interesting thought? First, we sacrifice. Remember Haggai? It was a solemn sacrifice as one definition, but it was also a great feast and festivity. What you're going to see is that's the beginning of this entire new nation called Israel, too. Exodus twelve two. This month shall be the your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And so, what we see is a new beginning that is starting with sacrifice. There's a lot of things you could look at in there too, with departing out of evil and leaving Egypt behind. Uh, with uh, Russell Blum, we were talking on Wednesday night, and he said, "How about eating the whole sacrifice?" If that's a symbol of Jesus, we don't just start by enjoying the sacrifice saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, but then we partake of it and we don't leave anything behind, the full thing. First, feed him. Now, this is backwards. I don't know if you guys remember the story of Elijah and the widow from Zarephath. It's a really challenging story because if you're the widow from Zarephath, you get a little uncomfortable in the story. We'd rather be Elijah in the story and say, hey, feed me. Instead, I think we're more like the widow. And Elijah is more of a symbol of Jesus in this. This widow is commanded to feed him by God Almighty. That's actually what God tells Elijah. I've commanded a widow woman in Zarephath to feed you. <laughs> this widow woman doesn't have anything. It's sort of a tricky one. When Okay, she does have something. She has a little bit of uh, flour and a little bit of oil. Just enough to make one little cake and then her and her son are planning on baking that little cake, eating it, and dying. (laughs) That's when Elijah arrives, that's the plan. And Elijah is going to start by saying, hey, feed me first. And if you do, your flour and your oil will never run out. You wanna be successful in your life, feed him first. 1 Kings 17, 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and for your son. You can imagine her thinking, going, there won't be anything left to make something for me and for my son. You want to succeed in this life? You remember that gigantic boiler that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to become? If we want to get this right, who's first? Jesus is first. Not your life, not your skin, not your comforts, not your appetites, him. And when we live that way, it's amazing. But actually, our life functions the way we desire it to function. We're fruitful the way we desire to be fruitful. We are free the way that we desire to be free. But that comes at a cost. We have to let go of the controls. We have to let go of our life as we now know it. First fruits. You guys have heard that statement. The very first fruits out of the harvest. Okay, gather that in. This is the very first fruits. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Listen to the result. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You see, I'm not, no one has ever really thought of me as a prosperity gospel guy. You know, a guy that's going to talk about how you can make it rich in this world. When I look at something like this, my first instinct is to see soul productivity and prospering in your relationship with Christ. I would much rather be the happiest man on earth than the wealthiest man on earth. I would rather be the most joy-filled man on earth than have uh, the most money. And it's, it's a higher priority in my soul because I believe it's a higher priority in heaven, right? Right? And so when I look at something like this, that's what I see. Just, just so you know. I'm not saying God doesn't care for us financially. He does. He does provide for us in that regard too. But primarily speaking, there is a need and a craving in our life to actually live, to be alive, to be impactful. We desire to have an effective existence on this earth. Not to just pass through and die, but to actually see this world change. You're anything like me. That's the case. So what do I need to do? I need to honor him with the first fruits. First pursuit. Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So God could say, I see what you're after. I see it. Okay, we understand that. Now, where do we start? When you're getting out of bed in the morning, what do you do? Okay, I'm going to seek you first. All right? when you walk into the living room, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to seek you first. When you walk into the kitchen, what are you going to do? I'm going to seek you first. Okay. When you walk into your marriage, what are you going to do? I'm going to seek you first. Okay. When you walk into your parenting, what are you going to do? I'm going to seek you first. And then all these other things are going to be added in. God is going to care for the proper development and cultivation when we put the priority where the priority needs to be. First priority. 2 Chronicles 1, 7 through 12. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? Okay, we're going to stop there. Now, I want you to imagine you don't know the story. See, for those of you that don't know the story, this is a lot more fun. And those of you that know the story, you can sort of cheat and give the right answer. It's like the little kid in Sunday school where he always answers, Jesus! You know, and the the teacher's like, oh, good, good for you, Charlie. And he always gets it right. And so the kid grows up just giving the right answer instead of actually thinking it through, right? I want you to think this through and engage with the stories if you're in it. God comes to you and says, ask, what shall I give you? Could you imagine if the God of the universe, which ironically he does in the New Testament, but if he comes to you and says, ask, whatever you want, what what are you going to ask for? I've, I've had many moments in my life where I've gone over this afresh and I, I want to be honest and I want to approach the throne of grace. I, I don't want to just say, okay, because Solomon asked for this, I'm not just going to ask for it. I want to think it through and evaluate it spiritually and say, what am I supposed to ask for? And Solomon said to God, you have shown great mercy to David my father and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David my father be established for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this great people of yours. Then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall nor shall any after you have the like. So what you're going to see is when Solomon honors God in the first priority then the other things are added. The other things that most of us are after in our life are a huge distraction because we try and get them the wrong way. But God says, seek me first. Make me the center point. I desire to see the church of Jesus Christ awakened. I desire to see the church of Jesus Christ stirred to action. And so God may say to me, well, Eric, start with how you wake up in the morning. Start with how you walk into the living room. I'm like, what does that have to do with this global problem we have? Because, Eric, that's how I solve it. I solve it in the individuals. And when you guys are changed, and there's a revival inside of Eric Ludi, then that revival spreads through his home. That revival can spread through his church. That revival actually starts first here, then it works outward. In the beginning. So what's in the beginning of your day? What's in the beginning of these different zones throughout your day? So the first step to the proving ground. So we have engagements we're going to have in our life. They're tests, they're trials. But that red step at the bottom, that first step forward is the one I'm wanting to focus on. How you initiate your day, whether it's in the morning, whether it's in the living room zone, whether it's in the kitchen zone, whether it's in the marriage zone, whether it's in the parenting zone, or any other zone that we could come up with, which there's a lot, how are you engaging with it? So the moment you wake up, The moment you enter the living room, the moment you enter the kitchen, that's what we've covered so far. The moment you enter your marriage ministry, isn't that an interesting title for it? Your marriage ministry. The moment you enter into that, how are you entering in? What is your attitude? What is your disposition? Remember how we were waking up and we're rejoicing? We're declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching to our soul. How are you entering into your marriage communications? Are you entering in sort of, you know, lethargically, like tired and exhausted? Or are you going to enter in leaning forward saying, Lord Jesus, give me grace to love well, to serve well. The moment you enter your family dynamic, isn't that a great word for family? Dynamic. The moment you enter the world of people drama, this is a whole bunch of people drama right here. The moment I engage with the outside world, I need to already have first steps I have to be ready, light on, ding, ready to share Jesus. I have to have the Holy Spirit in me. I can't just beg for the Holy Spirit once I'm already, you know, getting cantankerous and upset and offended with someone going, God help, God help. I need to enter into that with the grace of God. It's a first thing. The moment you are offended. You know the moment you are offended, you have a first step? The moment that happens, you need to make a decision of how you're going to respond. And how you respond from that moment is going to define the trajectory of everything else. How about this one? The moment you are praised. Did you know that there you can actually handle praise incorrectly? Someone compliments you and it actually goes in the wrong direction. Sort of like waking up on the wrong side of the bed. It's like getting up on the wrong side of praise. And as a result, it harms you instead of helps you. The moment you are overlooked... The moment you are accused, the moment you are inspired, the moment you are discouraged, the moment you are presented with fear, the moment you are tempted, the moment you succeed. You ever notice that you can succeed in something and it can immediately remove you actually from the presence of God and you immediately start uh, applauding yourself. It's like, I did it. I did it. Instead of recognizing, thank you, Lord. Remember the, the lepers that are healed? Only one came back and said, thank you. But you know how big of a deal that would have been to be healed of leprosy? But they found success, but they didn't take the right next step. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Whatever that first step is for you, that's what I want to exhort right now. I want you to allow the Spirit of God to touch that that zone in your life that maybe is the one you want to overlook. Not yet, not yet. God, I don't want you to touch that one right now. Let's allow God to touch that zone and to begin anew, afresh, a pattern of success. Because if you've been in a bad pattern for a long time, it's actually rather challenging in your own brain to think of it ever changing. But to say, Lord, you are a God of new beginnings. Start with this. Lord, here I am and ask God to invigorate you in that area. Father, I ask that you would be glorified in our lives, that you would be seen. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would gently touch those areas of our life that need attention. Here we are, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would fill us and empower us to do It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com.